Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, Adam Roberts, and my guest today is one of my favorite chefs, Marco Canora, who is a James Beard Award winner for Best Chef in New York, and he's an awesome guy, and he's done so many cool things. His restaurant, Hearth, is one of our favorite restaurants in the East Village or in New York or anywhere, um, and he's got a great cookbook called Salt to Taste, and his Instagram is incredible. If you don't follow it, you got to follow Marco Canora. But before we talk to Marco, um, I thought it'd be fun, since we're using FaceTime for these interviews during social isolation, to FaceTime my good friend, Jonathan Parks Ramage, uh, who is an incredible writer, a really funny guy, and he's the fiance of our first lunch therapy guest, Ryan O'Connell. Um, because uh, Jonathan just started cooking for the first time in his life, and I thought it would be fun to hear what he has to say about it. So let's give Jonathan a call. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Anna. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I was just telling our listeners all about uh, you and your new cooking journey. My very new cooking journey. Well, let's let's like rewind the tape a little bit. So you know, you and I have been friends for years. True. And you've and you're a food lover. You love to eat. You love to go to restaurants. You've always been an enthusiastic um, guest at my home. But you hadn't yet like cracked the stove of your own kitchen, so to speak. Right. I loved food so much that I refused to cook it because I. <laughs> <laughs> afraid of what I do to it and that I wouldn't live up to my own very high standards for food. Well, so tell us the story. Like, how did, what was the, so the coronavirus happened. We're in Corona land. It was a pandemic miracle. <laughs> Basically, I didn't have a choice. I mean, so we, uh, Ryan, my lovely boyfriend, fiance, I guess, mm -hmm. was, I mean, we, we just never cooked. We were both completely worthless. Um, and as you said, always went out to delicious restaurants and were foodies and just never cooked at home. Like did have, had literally nothing in our refrigerator except for chilled wine. Although you did have a one-on-one <laughs> -on -one cooking lesson with a master once where he guided you and that was me, but it, clearly it had no impact on you whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> well, because there was no necessity for it. And I was, again, it was always this thing of me being afraid and not being able to live up to my own standards of like what I loved about food. Okay. So then Smash catches the pandemic and was like, well, fuck, we have to cook now. And since Ryan is also a little bitch when it comes to delicious gourmet food, uh, my attempts to get him to eat frozen pizza or really anything frozen were completely thwarted. <laughs> with the terrifying task of cooking. And in a deep twist, I found myself actually loving it. Gave me, I think also partially because part of the reason why I never cooked before is because of the time thing as well. Like I would be working all day and, you know, I didn't really have time to slow down. And, and, and it just was like, oh, it's just so easier. It's just much easier to, to just like order food or go out. But now I feel like we have so much more time. Mm -hmm. and like kind of meditative and relaxing. And I mean, it's not like I'm making like you know, in baked Alaska every night. <laughs> you should. It's really not that hard. You just need a blowtorch, <laughs> some egg whites, and some ice cream. I don't know. That sounds a little advanced. <laughs> terrifying. 
But what was the first thing that you made? Like, what was the first meal that you really cooked on this journey? I mean, it's definitely like an easy pasta. I mean, part of the trick to my cooking has been to get delicious bougie ingredients mm -hmm. and keep the recipes simple. So we have this like amazing local, um, like tiny Italian food specialty store. Mm -hmm. So one of the dishes I made was just, we got some delicious pesto okay. and I threw in some capers and sun-dried tomatoes, uh -huh. um, a little bit of butter after one pasta, uh -huh. parmesan, and then melted the parmesan with the pasta and then topped it with some crumbled semi-hard goat cheese, if that's how you call it. It wasn't like a soft goat cheese. It was like a... Yeah. Wow. So you kind of went for it. I mean, those are some bold choices. Like, where, how did you think to add capers? Like, where did that idea come from? Well, my sister makes this really delicious, like, pesto pasta with capers. Uh -huh. and, like, the salty brininess of it and how it... Oh, my God. Listen to you. You sound like a chef. The salty brininess. <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to sass this up with as many Top Chef buzzwords as I can. <laughs> Well, it's funny. Yeah, I mean, our guest today is a James Beard award-winning chef from New York, and he grew up with an Italian mother. He talks about, like, his mom was from Italy, from Tuscany, and he grew up at her side, and she'd be, like, making all this food, and he learned, he said he, I don't want to spoil it, but he says he learned from osmosis, and for me, it's the total opposite, because I grew up in a family where nobody cooked, and I was just so curious about it, I wanted to do it for myself. But where, where do you fall? Like, did you grow up with cooking in your house, or was there no cooking? My dad would be, like, kind of the resident cook, and he actually, like, would make delicious pizza and, like, pizza dough from scratch, and, like, was kind of, like, our family's resident cook. But it never, I mean, it never really, it never rubbed off on me, mm -hmm. and... And like I said, it's like gone out to eat so much, like in my recent life, that it was never a priority. But yeah, I found it really. I, I'm I'm enjoying it. We also have gotten some fresh direct. Okay. Which I know is like fully cheating, but uh, it's also like not because it's actually hard. Like the 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 recipe is like they don't actually do anything. Still have to make everything from scratch. They just provide like the exact amount of ingredients and like very detailed step by step instructions. So, what but did you make from Fresh Direct? I did a flauta. Oh, uh, I think I saw a picture of that. That looked good. It was delicious. It was, I'd never fried tortillas before. Um, I made like this black bean mash and then like a onion black bean. Um, kind of like a stir fry. I mean, it's not a stir fry, but like kind of like sauteed onions and black beans together and mm -hmm. put some peppers and cheese, and then you fry up the flauta. I don't know. It was <laughs> fry up the flauta. That sounds very <laughs> fancy. Um, I think the dish that you should make is is, is this like viral? I went viral on the internet, but it's actually an old recipe and it's kind of a classic. And so there was this Italian cookbook author named Marcella Hazan. <laughs> And she um, was sort of like the Julia Child of Italian cooking. Like she wrote the book that like everyone started using in America in like the 60s and 70s. But she has a recipe for tomato sauce that is like one of the most beloved recipes on the internet and in the world. And all you do is you slice an onion in half and you put it in a pot with a half a stick of butter and a can of tomatoes. And you turn on the heat and that's it. 
Oh, wait, really? Yeah, you add some salt. And it's so good. Wait, I have all those things. Can you send can you send me that? Yeah. I, mean, I know and I should just remember, but like oh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, for our listeners' sake, I'll just repeat. It's Marcella Hazan's tomato sauce. And it's so easy, but it makes your house smell so good because the tomatoes start to simmer with the butter. And you and I think you add like a little salt and you could add some like red chili flakes if you want. And if you want to be very advanced, you can throw in a garlic clove if you want that. Oh my God, wait, yes. I want to do this because Ryan's been wanting like fresh tomato sauce. So yeah, I- and it's great because it works with canned tomatoes. So it's like you don't have to go harvest your own tomatoes. Oh, love it. So Jonathan, what's for dinner tonight? Well, I was actually thinking of, you sent me a recipe for lemon ricotta pasta. Oh yeah, that's a good one too. Um, so I think I might make a lemon ricotta moment nice well the secret to that one is you got to use the pasta cooking water because it gets starchy and it will help it all come together yes i will (laughs) say i will siphon off the pasta cooking water but don't use too much because i had a friend who uh did it and said it was soupy so don't make it soupy oh yeah just like a splash well i would i would add your pasta to the ricotta and start by stirring it around And and if it looks clumpy then use the water to sort of, you know, make it into a sauce. Right, temperate. Okay. All right, Jonathan. Well, thank you for doing this intro with me. Yes, thanks for having me, honey. All right, good luck tonight. Thanks. Bye. All right. Well, thanks to Jonathan again. And before we get to my interview with Marco, I just want to remind you, if you haven't already, you can, can subscribe to this podcast by going to Lunch Therapy on the Apple Podcasts store. Is it a store? I'm not even sure. And click, um, type in Lunch Therapy and click subscribe. And while you're there, if you can please, please, please leave a good review. It's been a while since I've gotten any reviews. I, you know, now you have no excuse because you're home all day. So please write a little something. Five stars would be great. I'd really appreciate it. All right, well, here's my interview with Marco Canora. Hey, Marco. Let's see. All right. Hi. That was great. How's, how's that? That's fantastic. Uh, well, thank you so much for... I'm sitting up in my attic. Oh, wow. Nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's so great. It's so funny. I've, I've, I've had my list of like dream guests for lunch therapy and you've definitely oh, been please. high up on yeah, it. Me, me and David Kinch from Manresa. No, I, I'd much rather have your food between you and me. <laughs> um, but I, and it's so strange that like I took this coronavirus to realize that I could do fo- FaceTime interviews. So yeah, here totally. we are. You know what? Maybe whole can, new world. Can you maybe bring it a little closer to you just for the audio? Sure. Thanks. Is that, yeah. That should be Is good. that better? Yeah, I just want to make sure we can hear you okay, because it's going to be an audio experience. Um, sure. Well, Marco, how's, I mean, this is a tough question, but how are you doing? Um, whew, it's been an emotional roller coaster ride, man. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, you know, I'm constantly trying to remind myself that despite all the madness of being in the restaurant industry and all the challenges we have ahead of us and all that stuff, it's like, I feel somehow I'm trying to remind myself to feel very lucky because like my family is healthy. Right. I'm healthy. You know, it's like, I love this meme going around, which is like two generations ago, we were asked to go fight in a war. And now we're asked to sit on our couch. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I've been, I've been cooking and making focaccia and I'm making pizza tonight and soups and baked goods. And like, in a lot of ways, it's like, my God, 
all the time in the world for self-care, for cooking, nourishing foods. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, uh, I'm trying to say to myself, like, God damn, I'm super lucky. Well, that's a very healthy, you know, good attitude to have. I mean, yeah, but, but I was thinking about you just in terms of the whole restaurant industry of it all. I mean, it just seems like, you know, how is it? Is it almost too soon to, to start thinking about that? Or is it something? No, that- I mean, we've been thinking about it. You know, I, look, I like everyone in this industry. Um, we had, you know, the cash runs out very quick where it's like this world is week to week. And uh, as soon as the revenues stop, um, things go upside down very quickly. Um, So, you know, we unfortunately had to lay off the vast majority of our staff. Um, I kept a few key players on that's going to help us get back, hopefully, you know, sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. Um, And we still have the Brodo window out of the back door of hearth where Brodo originated. Okay. That's still, that's still open and we're serving, you know, I made a bunch of hearth for home items. So I made, you know, a bunch of soups and stews and our meatballs and I packaged them and froze them. Okay. So we're, we're selling them to people in the neighborhood um, because a lot of people are looking for nourishing, easy options. And, um, you know, while there's probably a lot of takeout options in the East Village, mm-hmm. um, I don't think most of them are kind of built uh, on on like the notion of nourishment and nutrient density. So I'd like to believe um, that we're providing, you know, something needed and nourishing at this crazy time. Well, that's one of the interesting things. I mean, I should say for people who are listening to this, that if you are not following Marco Canora on Instagram, you are missing (laughs) the best cooking videos that are on the internet. I mean, your stuff looks so good and you make it seem so easy. You made, well, you you made these like sticky buns the other day that had like pecans. It looked like the most incredible thing I've ever seen, but there's like so many things I want to talk to you about. And we're going to get into your lunch therapy momentarily. But cool. um, but that's interesting to me when you talked about nourishing. I feel like you went through a journey of going, starting to cook more healthy food. Right? Is that something that happened later in your life, or or had you always been um, interested in it? You know, I grew up in a household with a mom who cooked a lot. Okay. Who came from Tuscany. Um, so you know, growing up, I had a garden in our backyard. I grew up on the like kind of on the Hudson River. Uh, 60 miles north of the city. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was a super lucky kid because my mom came from Tuscany and her aesthetic and her kind of approach to food was like whole foods, cooking at home. Um, We grew a garden and it's like, as a kid, I would like pick zucchinis and zucchini flowers and mom would make a frittata for dinner with, with a salad with greens that we grew in our garden. So you know, this is this is back in the early 80s, mm-hmm. late 70s. So, you know, at that time to be to have to have a life that was like that was really special. So um, I've always kind of cared about wholesome food. I've always believed in cooking, um, but I definitely had a little bit of my own health journey later on in life that kind of gave birth to the Brodo concept, mm-hmm. um, you know, which really just spawned from the fact that like. For 20 years, I grinded in New York City as a cook and then a chef. And then I was like, I want to open up my own restaurant. And, you know, that 20 year period of time where I opened craft and I was running the dinner service at Gramercy Tavern and then opening Hearth and opening NCMA, like it was, it's an intense, it's an intense uh, thing to embark upon. Sure. And, uh, and at the end of it, I was, uh, 
you know, I hit my early 40s and I was like truly just a disaster of a human <laughs> right. in every way possible. And I think that's probably true for a lot of hardworking chefs. They don't take care of 100%. themselves. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a unique story. Okay. But then you kind of turned a corner and you started to take care of yourself after that? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I did. I turned a corner. I kind of hit a, I hit a, a roadblock uh, and I decided to really, you know, take a look at what I was doing and try to like try to fix it. And, um, you know, there were a lot of levers in that journey, but, um, uh, you know, and, and nothing revolutionary. It's like, everybody wants to debate about how hard it is to figure out what's healthy and what's not. And at the end of the day, I think we've all known for a long time, Yeah, <laughs> you know, like yeah. the things to stay away from the things you need to do more of, you know, like this idea of like, move your body more mm -hmm. and good sleep and eat whole foods and don't <laughs> eat a lot of junk foods. And if you're going to have sweets, like make sure they're special and you enjoy them and you're not doing it all the time. And mm -hmm. like, don't drink, don't drink soda all day. <laughs> like, you know, there's a lot of tenants out there in the health and wellness community. And the, just the idea of being healthy, it's like, we want to blame it on noise and confusion, but I believe there's really no confusion. <laughs> right. It's, it's funny. There really like, isn't. You have your 10 things in the bathroom of hearth where it's like, the ten, you know, buy good food. Like, yeah. Eat cook local, it with care. Cook it with yeah. care. But I feel like you got to, now you have to make one that like the, everything you just said, like, you know, don't drink soda, whatever that is. That was yeah, good. Yeah, totally. Um, well, well, you know, my second, my second book, A Good Food Day has 10 tenets of what a good food day means. Okay. Um, so there, there's a cool list there that I'm pretty proud of. Well, I've been using Salt to Taste. I mean, it's such a great book. Your, your first, is that Thank your first you. book? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. Well, the stuff you're cooking now at home, though, that seems so comforting and just so, you know, and, mm -hmm. and rib-sticking, comfort foodie. Um, so, so when you go through your day, do you – like eat a light lunch and then eat like a, a bigger dinner? Or how do you, how do you figure out the healthfulness of your day? Yeah. So, you know, I've been for a couple of years now, uh, before kind of it became the thing to do, I had been skipping breakfast. So mm -hmm. I basically, I try to eat an early dinner and then I don't try to eat food until lunch the next day. So oh, that wow. there's either 16 or 18 hours, you know, uh, of not of no eating at all. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes in the morning, if I get really hungry, I'll just drink some broth to get me to my lunch. Okay. But typically, I typically I'll eat lunch around one one thirty, and the last meal I had was like an early dinner the night before. Sometimes that dinner gets a little bit later, uh -huh. um, depending on where I am and what I'm doing. Like it's hard to eat dinner at six p.m. in New York City. Right. Yeah. That's <laughs> um, true. So, as you remember. Yeah. Um, um, and then, yeah. And then, uh, I, I, I try to create boxes and parameters and rules around my lunches. So, you know, I try to make sure that the first meal I put into my body is not a hundred percent like simple carbohydrates. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So like I try to, I really try to, uh, ensure that I take in a lot of varieties of vegetables every day. Well, this is I a, think that a that's good, super uh, important. This is a good segue to uh, your lunch that you had today, so I can start your therapy yeah. session and ask oh, you. Oh yes, yeah, Marco. I, I need one. Okay, <laughs> so uh, I, I kind of have a heads up because you did send a picture, but I think the world yeah. the world is dying to know what did Marco Canora <laughs> have for lunch today. 
Oh, it's so thrilling. Um, <laughs> it is. Is it? I it mean, is kind of thrilling. I mean, I, the picture looked amazing. Yeah. So yesterday, um, you know, I've been home a lot and I've been cooking a lot. And yesterday, I cleaned out my cupboards because um, I love doing these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found a bag of uh, lentils, um, and I had a bunch of like spongy you know, vegetables on the bottom of my veggie drawer in my refrigerator uh-huh. um, and some like, you know, mangled thyme that's been, you know, wrapped in paper towels for a while. And we always have a lot of garlic. Um, so I, I cobbled together um, a very simple rustic lentil soup um, and I made it last night and I let it sit in the fridge overnight, which I think soups absolutely want to sit in the fridge overnight before you make them. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and this, so today I, I heated up that soup and I added some chopped fresh spinach mm-hmm. um, and wilted that in just to add some more nourishment to it. Mm-hmm. And um, and then while it was heating up, I snacked on some leftover roasted cauliflower from last night's dinner. Okay. Um, so, you know, like that's, I try, that's like a win for me, right? So it was like, Really good lentils. I used some really good broth, lots of vegetables, lots of garlic, lots of herbs. Mm-hmm. Um, ate some like cruciferous cauliflower while yeah. I was eating it up. Um, but like, you know, and next to it, I put a lot of olive oil on top. I put Reggiano Parmesan cheese on top because mm-hmm. that's like the best cheese in the universe. Mm-hmm. And um, and I had two pieces of toast. So uh, I, I brought from Hearth um, when when we closed it down. I took a bunch of loaves of bread from uh, Jim Leahy, Sullivan Street. Sure. He does, he does like a two-day fermented whole grain loaf. Okay. So I sliced it, and I put it in the, fr- in the freezer sliced. Mm-hmm. So I just take out frozen slices and toast them, and right. it, works really, it works really well. I've been doing that too. It's a, it's a great technique when you get a beautiful it, loaf of bread. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It's like you never know. Well, Mark, um, and it lasts forever. So, yeah. but my favorite thing about the bread piece of today's lunch is um, it's what's called fetunta. Have you ever heard of fetunta? It's with a lot of olive oil on it, right? Is that? Yeah. Well, you also rub gar- raw garlic on the crust of the bread. So you like you basically grate raw garlic onto the bread mm-hmm. with the roughness of the bread is what takes it off of the garlic. Okay. You know what I mean? So yeah. you just rub it. Uh-huh. Um, and then you douse it with olive oil and then sea salt and cracked black pepper. And it's just like a, a very quick take of like a garlic bread, I guess. I, li- I like um, your philosophy because you're, you're eating an absolutely delicious lunch, but you're not having a big breakfast. You're not, you know, it's, you're managing how you're doing this and it's not yeah. full of fat and carbohydrates. It's, it's got vegetables. It's, it sounds very balanced. Yeah. But I wanted yeah. to ask you, like my first question for you in this therapy session, which is actually more of a curiosity question for me because I'm such a fan of yours, is you talked about growing up with this mother who had a garden, who made fresh food for you. And like that was the beginning of your journey. And then you wound up like, you know, running this restaurant, you know, winning the James Beard Award, best chef in New York. Um, and so how how did you take these roots, these like these cooking roots of yours and then put it through the like restaurant system? I mean, like what what did you yeah. what did you have to learn in the restaurant world that you didn't do at home? And and how did that start for you? Yeah, that's a really interesting and, and wonderful question. Um, um, because, like, you know, is I, I think it's very important that question because 
you know, one of the stumbling blocks for me is like, it's always, you know, the, the atmosphere of a restaurant and what you're asked to do in a restaurant mm -hmm. is very, very challenging, right? Like, you know, we feed 180 people in an hour and 45 minutes. And it's like, you know, I've always come from soulful home cooked food. And sometimes it's really challenging to capture that depth and that flavor and that approach and that execution and translate it to a restaurant uh, kind of formula mm -hmm. is very, very, is very, very challenging. And, you know, the short answer is, you know, just through the education I got from working at different places from, you know, from watching, you know, my first job at the Ship Lantern Inn on Route 9W, you know, it was like, it was like continental cuisine of 1983. <laughs> um, and uh, so, you know, every, every kitchen you look at and every kitchen you work in, you learn different approaches and different techniques to accommodate what it is you need to do in a restaurant. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to, to, you know, spend some time in some really, um, great restaurants. Chabreo in Florence was one that I spent a couple months in that I really loved. And, uh, you know, I think you know this, but I worked with Tom Colicchio at Gramercy Tavern for a long sure. time. And then I opened up craft. Um, and, uh, so you just, you just kind of learn, you just learn those techniques of how to execute in a restaurant kitchen over time. Well, I mean, I think for me, what seems to be the difference is that when you're cooking at home, you know, you don't have the, you don't have to dazzle in quite the same way that you have to dazzle at a restaurant. I mean, you want people mm. to, be, to be like, you know, smacking their lips in disbelief. And I feel like there's a yeah. lot of cheats that you can use at a restaurant. Like I, I was watching Top Chef last night. And I was just yeah. seeing how many chefs were throwing things into the deep fryer. You know, they were like, yeah, throwing like whole steaks totally. and like rice. And it's like, oh, my gosh. But it feels like you can get away with that in a restaurant because you, you can give people tons of fat and tons of salt and not have to feel guilty about it because it's not your family. But yeah, when, totally. when you're home, you're not going to feed your children, you know, deep fried steak covered in sea salt. And, you know, it feels like it's a different. No, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, you know, that's an important that's an important thing for me of late, uh, especially is like I want I want the customers of Hearth and Brodo to leave feeling really good about what they ate. And like mm -hmm. one of the things, you know, back when I was dining out a lot in New York City, it really occurred to me that like, you know, eight out of the 10 meals I had, even at fancy restaurants with great chefs who were shopping at the green market or doing all the things you know, I walked away from those tables feeling like shit. Yeah. And, totally. and, you know, I, I think that it's a great lens to uh, determine the type of meal that you had, right? Like mm -hmm. it shouldn't be, and I've been kind of preaching this song for a while now, but it's like, we have to move beyond having our palate be the only, you know, be the only lens at which we judge our meals, hmm. you know? It's just like, of course it needs to taste delicious. Right. Of course it does. But, you know, Doritos are delicious and Big Macs are delicious, I guess, depending on who you talk to. I haven't had a Big Mac in a long time. <laughs> but my point, my point being is it's like we have to ask more of our food and more of our food experiences, I think. And like my mission of late is to make sure that if I'm going to if I'm going to serve a consumer something that they're going to pay top dollar for, 
I want them to feel as though they've been energized and nourished by my food. And it's not just, wow, this tastes great. That's great. Well, I mean, I, I always feel that way at heart when I go there, that there's well, a, thank you. a nice balance. It's by design. Yeah. Well, Marco, I feel <laughs> like that the best way to go about this, since this is a lunch therapy session, is to sort of like flash back to your childhood a little bit. And I want to I know what young Marco Canora was like growing up. You said on the Hudson River? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in a tiny little uh, riverside town called Milton, New York. Okay. Um. And what kind of kid and I was were you? A little, yeah. I was like, I was, you know, I was a bit of a, I was a bit of a, you know, I was riding my BMX bike and getting into trouble. Like I was, you know, I was kind of a troublemaker, mm-hmm. you know, like I was not on the sports team. I kind of hung out at the handball courts oh, okay. with, the, with the guy, you know, with the guys who wore the leather jackets, you know what uh-huh. I mean? Okay. And, uh, you know, I smoked, started smoking weed really, you know, early on. Like I wasn't a jock. I was definitely more of a head okay. um, into rock, into rock and roll. I was like obsessed with Led Zeppelin and like <laughs> I had my turntable and I had my pioneer, you know, old school turntable in my room. And, you know, my mother would throw her slippers at my door because I was like, jam- I was jamming Led Zeppelin so loud. Were you an only um, child? No, I had an older sister, four years older. Okay. Um, and uh, having said that, though, I was also, uh, you know, I w- I've always been kind of a hard worker, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I w- I've never shied away from hard work. I, I got a job, you know, washing dishes was my first job in 10th grade at the restaurant up the street. And um, I've always enjoyed work. I've always enjoyed cleaning I've always enjoyed the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, I don't know. It's just it's very therapeutic for me, and and I really love I love work, and I love the camaraderie in kitchens, and it's why I've been doing it my whole life. Like okay. I really I, I veered off once into the music business, um, and I did that for about a year and a half, but I, I quickly learned that sitting at a desk was just like, not for me. Right. So, You're on the move. Um, yeah. I, I really, I, I gotta be moving. Mm-hmm. And, um, the restaurant business spoke to me and like, I never looked back and, and I'm super, uh, I'm super proud of being in this industry for as long as I have been. And, um, I, I just, I love the group of people that are, are drawn to that industry. And, uh, so yeah. Um, well, I was going to ask, I mean, did your parents, you said your mom was a cook or she liked to cook at home? Yeah, no, she was an interior decorator by trade. Okay. She ran her own bit. She had her own uh, business uh, called Ferenzi Interior Designs. Okay. And, um, but she always valued cooking and put dinner on the table every single night of mm-hmm. the week. And, um, and we had unbelievable meals growing up and, uh, you know, holiday meals and stuff like that. And um, so, yeah, cooking in the kitchen was huge, huge heartbeat of our home. Was she, so she, was she born in Italy? Yeah, she was born in Lucca, Lucca. in Tuscany. In Tuscany, wow, okay. Yeah. So, so you kind yeah. of like won the lottery in terms of like having a, totally. a mother from Italy, like knew all that stuff. Yeah, I didn't always know it though, you know? Yeah. Like when, you know, like when I was like in fifth grade, and I would come home after school with my buddies yeah. and they would be like, what's for snack? <laughs> and like, I'd point to the wicker basket that had a bunch of nuts in their shell. 
with a nutcracker, <laughs> right. you know, That's hilarious. so it's like, so like, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't the coolest house in the block. If you looked at it through that lens, right. My mom, you know? I mean, to give you a context, like from how I, where I'm coming from, my mom, like never cooked, but she does like diet food. And she just, she literally <laughs> just texted me a recipe for a banana cake that banana bread she wants to make with sweet and low in it. Oh my God. Hopefully not margarine too. Yeah. <laughs> so you grew up this kid. So you were kind of like, you were like BMX, Led Zeppelin, handball courts. Yeah. But did, did your mom want you to, you know, like be a lawyer? Did she, like, did, was she pushing you towards something? Was, was she encouraging you to cook? What was the, what was the direction she wanted you to go in? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I think I must've been around 16 I, I just got my I just got my job uh, as a dishwasher, and I started like catching the bug of of the restaurant industry. Um, and it was funny because right about that time, my mom was hired by the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park mm-hmm. to re to redesign the entire place. Oh, okay. Um, like interior re- redecorate it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I. Uh, I remember she had a big meeting there and she asked if I would like to go to meet like, you know, I don't know who it was there. Um, and, you know, for a hot minute, I really contemplated like out of high school going to uh, the Culinary Institute of America. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was at that time, I was I convinced myself that I needed to go and get a business degree in school. And I thought I needed business first. And then I could figure it out. So I, and, and also I wanted to go to New York city. So, yeah. you know, the CIA wasn't quite as cool and fun as like going to New York city. So right. I, uh, and I wasn't a great student, so it wasn't like I could go to NYU or Columbia. Mm-hmm. So I went to, I went to Pace university okay. and they have a campus, they have a campus downtown, uh, right near the Brooklyn bridge approach. Nice. Um, so that's where I, that's where I went to school for business. And were you wild in New York city in your, in your youth? <laughs> oh, fuck yes, I was. <laughs> you were probably like in the East village before, you know, it, it was your East village. It was like another, my first, yeah. my first apartment after I lived in the dorms of downtown pace was on, uh, uh, 333 East 6th Street. It was the the block of the Indian restaurants. Oh, nice! I lived in a, I lived in a three bedroom apartment with two other uh, friends. And were you eating? Like, were you exploring all over New York at that time? And like, did did you have have that curiosity yet about food and yeah, all that stuff? I did. Well, it definitely it it definitely grew during my time there, from when I started to now. But um, uh, I totally was into food and one of my first jobs in New York city was at Dean and DeLuca Hmm. when they first moved to Prince and Broadway. So like every, every day I would just kind of leave the building down at pace uh, and explore the city because I really didn't know the city much. Mm -hmm. And um, one day I decided to walk up Broadway and stumbled upon Dean and DeLuca and it's like super, super heyday. Right. Like right, right as they moved from Prince street to the corner of Broadway and Prince. Mm-hmm. And that store was, you know, that store in that first couple of years was the most gorgeous, epic, you know, gourmet food place you'd ever imagine. And it totally like, it totally bowled me over. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I walked back to the prepared food section and I really, I literally like talked my way into a job. Oh, so you started working there. 
Yeah. So what what's, what counter did, did you did you slice the meat? Did you? No, I worked at the prepared foods. Prepared foods. So you, yeah. you started cooking. Yeah. So I don't remember her name, but it was like a little, you know, four foot eight uh, Indian woman who was the chef, and she was so badass. <laughs> and um, I kind of was like, I, I just kind of went up to her very enthusiastically, and I was like, "Look, I just started school." This is what I did at, you know, I worked at a restaurant for a couple of years, washing dishes and garbage. And I grew up in a household and I told her about my garden and I told her how much I love food. And she was like, okay, well come in and make a few dishes for the, for the display. And, um, and we'll see, you know, we'll see what you could do, you know? So what did you make? Do you remember what you made? Um, I did. So I made, um, I made a pasta, I made a farfalle pasta with zucchini and basil. Nice. Um, that sounds good. Yep. And then I did some, um, and then I did like, just like, um, roasted vegetables, like, uh, uh, red onion, um, red peppers, eggplant and zucchini with a lot of rosemary and garlic. And I just, you know, olive oil and I just roasted them on sheet pans. So I had a big platter of beautiful roasted vegetables and a cold pasta salad with farfalle and zucchini and basil. Um, and she loved it and I was hired. Wow. And so did you learn all that from your mom? Yeah. Yeah. Those were some things that we grew up eating. But did you spend time as a kid in the kitchen with your mom? Like where you, you were helping? Always. Her? Really? I mean, it wasn't like I had a cutting board next to her with an apron and my knife because there wasn't that kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. It was very kind of, it was very, it was kind of through osmosis almost, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't like, it wasn't like this initiative that my mom had to teach me how to cook. Right. It's like when you, and it's like, I'd like to think that I'm trying to do, I'm doing that now with my daughters. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, the best way to teach kids is through osmosis. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, also so just it's like, like a palate, like developing a taste for like how things should taste. Like, you know, even just being there and tasting her zucchini or tasting her pasta or like, how she salted the water, it probably like taught you what this should taste like. Right. Totally. Totally. Um, It's very, it's very cultural, you know, like I think learning, learning, especially things like food. uh, It's a, it's a very, it's a cultural thing that, that is embedded in your soul, you know? So you um, worked at Dean and DeLuca, you went to Pace and did you, did you finish business school? I did. I got my degree in international marketing. Oh, wow. Because I was going to ask, yeah. but I'm sure, I'm sure a business degree, <laughs> but I'm sure it's use, useful running a business. I mean, you, you must use some of that in your job, in your day-to-day yeah. life. So you, yeah, well, yes and, yeah. You yes were, and right? no, you yeah. know, like to a degree, of course. And then did you go to the CIA after that? No. So what did I you just do? continued working. I, I, I've always been, and, and I still... And I still advocate for this to anybody who asks for my advice. It's like, you know, I don't, I don't think you learn how to fillet a salmon by doing a salmon fillet class at the CIA. I really don't. How do I you mean, learn? it's, it's muscle memory. Like you just got to do it. You got to, you know, and, and here's the, here's the great part. It's like you can get paid for learning mm-hmm. because you just get a job, an entry level job and you surround yourself and you immerse yourself and you read, and now with YouTube, Jesus, you could watch a million videos on everything. Mm-hmm. And um, but you have to, you know, it's a hands-on craft cooking. You know, you have to do it. And it's like it infuriates me to think that I don't know. I just think it's bogus to be like, 
oh, you're going to get, you're going to take fish filleting 101. And then when you're done, you're going to know how to fillet a fish. So like, this is not going to be sponsored by bullshit. the, I'm not going to get an ad from the Culinary Institute of America <laughs> on this podcast. No, you're not. <laughs> but I'm you're curious, not. like, so, so I know, like I looked at your, you know, st- stuff online before I talked to you about your career and the places that you worked. But it feels like you had a very natural transition into like, you know, higher stakes environments and you know, your, your career seemed to like move up incrementally, you know, from starting at Dean and DeLuca to winding up at Kraft. Yeah. But I guess like my, my, my question is, when, when did this, like, when did you first enter a kitchen where it was like, all right, like, this is like sports, like this is now yeah. we're like, now we're like really in it. Like, what was the first job you had that felt like that? That was Gramercy Tavern. So you got this in so like night in 96 or 97, whatever that was. But, um, yeah. you know, up until then, up until then I was kind of like going to school and Dean and DeLuca. And then I, after I graduated college, I jumped on my motorcycle with my friend and we both rode our bikes out to San Francisco. We took the long way. We stopped in Boulder, Colorado for a couple of years. And like I cooked there and worked and I cooked and worked in San Francisco um, but that entire journey was really more about like, you know, meeting girls and drinking booze and having fun because I was like in my twenties, sure. you know, yeah. um, I, it, it wasn't like, you know, the old school European model where, you know, if you're a chef, you, you know, you start at 16 with your nose to the grindstone for 15 years before you're a chef, like the way, like my twenties was like all shits and giggles and fun. As it should be, um, I think. You get it. You get I think, out of I your think so too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had a blast. I don't regret it at all. No, you got to do it. Not until I moved, it's not until I moved back to New York City at like late 20s and decided that I wanted to make a career of it. Did I, you know, I put on a old school, you know, I put on a suit, mm-hmm. I made a, a resume, and I, I did my research and looked at a bunch of. Um, you know, New York Times reviews and Gourmet Magazine at the time, like a bunch of reviews. And I made a long list of restaurants to go to and I, I hit the beat and um, and I got a job at Gramercy Tavern and they had been open for a little over a year Oh, okay. Um, when I started there. The very beginning of Gramercy Tavern. Yeah, they just got they just got their first they just got their their first review and it was two stars and they were very upset about it. Okay. Um, and I was there cooking fish when they got their second review by Ruth Reichel and got three stars. Really? She's been on this podcast. Like, she was, she was a guest. I know. Yeah. I know. Wait, so and I got to tell you, yeah. Adam, one of the highlights to this day, I'm 52 now. Okay. To this day, uh, one of the highlights of my career is being a young cook working on the fish station at Gramercy Tavern and getting that review and reading Ruth Reichel's words in the New York times review about the fish that she ate and me and me knowing that I, and I cooked them. I cooked all of her fish and, uh, it was like, I don't, I, I, there are no words to describe the feeling I had as a young, as a new, you know, as a young cook in New York city at Gramercy Tavern having that experience was just uh, uh, extraordinary. That's so cool. So did you know yeah. that she was there when she was there? Oh yeah. Oh, they right. nailed her. Oh, yeah. Oh, no doubt. She wasn't in a disguise. Because that is when she was doing the, yeah, I guess she didn't have a disguise or maybe she did. I don't recall. Um, but we knew it was her. Yeah. Because the whole kitchen fucking stopped. I'm sure. Wait, so was that yeah. when Tom Clickio was there? Was he at 
Yeah, yeah totally. So he was the totally. chef. He was the head chef there when you started. One hundred percent. And what? And did you ever anticipate that he would go on to become this like huge star of Top Chef and and this recognizable? No, brand? I mean I, that that was bizarre. Um, you know, he he obviously. I was always kind of impressed with his demeanor and his abilities. Um, so I, I wouldn't say I was surprised. I really didn't peg him as, you know, kind of going down that road. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he did it really well. And, and um, you know, we're, he, he's really a mentor of mine. And, and I, I've always admired and respected um, what he has done and what he continues to do. So. Well, I was going to ask, I mean, when you entered that environment, because this is sort of how I started by asking about like going into a high stakes environment, because like when I think about like you learning by osmosis at the at your mother's side, you know, in the kitchen while she's making her, you know, frittata or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now you're now you're with Tom Colicchio with Ruth Reichel in the dining room and you're making her yeah. fish. Like, how did you adjust to that shift? Like, how did you deal with the the pressures yeah, of that? The intensity. Yeah. What was that like? You know, you? my... Dude, when I, my first trail at Gramercy Tavern, Mm -hmm. like scared the living shit out of me, man. I had never seen, I I was never exposed to that kind of intensity and that kind of discipline. And at the time there was a sous chef there who ran night service. His name was Payson. And, uh, he was a fucking maniac. (laughs) He he was like full on bald and he he had like a rash on his forehead because he was like always so stressed out and he had a big, he had like this big, like this big, huge mustache that like twirled and he always had a huge dip in his, he was always dipping like uh, tobacco, which was kind of gross. And he was a fucking screamer and his, and his head, the veins would bulge out of his head and he'd have like a red rash and he's like screaming at people. And it was like so high stakes and such a different era. Um, and, you know, it, it both scared the living shit out of me, but it also, it also grabbed and engaged me in a way that got me very excited. You know, mm-hmm. like it was like, so ch- it's like, I challenged myself because I was so afraid mm-hmm. and I was like, you know what? I need to like, I need to figure out a way to, be strong enough to deal with this. And it was like a real personal challenge of mine. Um, and I jumped in and, and like, I was very concerned. I wasn't going to be able to do it, but like, I, I was very proud of myself and, and I worked my way through that kitchen. And in 18 months time, I was running the, I was running the kitchen at night. And what was your strategy to get through? I mean, you, you know, you, did you just want to do Dude, it? It's job? like, old. it's just like, you know, it's just like the, we know what we need to do to eat, to eat right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know what the strategy was like, keep your head down, work really fucking hard, have really sharp knives, mm-hmm. pay attention. Don't talk a lot, listen a lot mm-hmm. and like pay attention and just like do good work. Did you, you ever know? get, just like, did you ever get in trouble for like screwing up a dish or burning something? Like did somebody ever scream at you? Of course. Are you kidding? And did you, that was like daily fucking, that was daily practice back then. And how did you, what, I mean, did, did it, did you take it personally? Like, did you go home at night and like, stay no, you at- couldn't. I mean, I would take it. I would, I was my own harshest critic. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I didn't, you know, again, it was a different time and you had to have a big thicker skin then. I mean, my God, could we not get away with the shit that went on back then today? 
Do you Holy think it, cow. Do, do you think it was effective though? Like, do you think that it, it worked? Yeah. You know, it's a very tricky, it's a very tricky conversation and debate to get into yeah. around like that approach to where we are today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that there's a, I think that there was a very interesting, healthy conversation uh, around, you know, what the approach back then was and what it yielded and what today's approach is and what it yields because they're very much at odds with one another. And it's like, you know, I'm certainly not advocating for abuse and all of those things, but it's like, you know, I'm just fascinated because like, it's a hard, hard road Mm -hmm. to make perfect food every night. Right. And it requires, it requires an insane amount of discipline Mm -hmm. and, and attention. And it's really difficult to get that kind of discipline and attention in an environment where it's super soft and lovey. Well, how do you, how do you handle that now? (laughs) You know, I mean, I mean, in, in, at hearth, like, you know, do you, do you bring some of that with you? Do you, do you, it's like, that's the, that's the secret sauce and the magic of, of managing people. And, and it's like, my God, like that's the work of today Mm -hmm. is, is finding an approach that gets the great, that gets great work out of people mm-hmm. with and, but at the same time, it's very supportive and conducive to like compassion. And, you know, it's really an interesting, challenging time for our industry. And like, I look at Sean Brock and, you know, his latest narrative about his journey and how it made him sick. And now he's doing this new restaurant and it's going to be like this amazing restaurant alongside kind of, um, um, you know, like, I don't want to call it like a spa mentality, but it's like, <laughs> he's really trying to make them live in harmony, right? right? This idea of like self-care to the max next to high execution is right. like fucking really hard. Well, I mean, especially because you have to, you're the one who has to answer to the customer that gets the, the plate of gnocchi that's, you know, badly cooked or the potatoes are raw and it's like you have to go back to the kitchen and say to the chef who did that you know hey you know uh sam that really wasn't great to how you did you know but anyway i don't want to get too too sidetracked but but it's interesting to me that i i I will say like when i met when i first cooked with you because you were really generous and let me come to hearth and you taught me how to make gnocchi um, yeah. for my cookbook and <laughs> what I noticed when I was there in the kitchen with you is that everyone just really respected you I mean you had everyone's respect yeah. and they were there when you were like can I get a pan like they brought you the pan you know there but there wasn't like they were yeah. it wasn't fear-based it didn't seem it just seemed like they wanted to please you right so look it's like one of the things I've you know I pride myself on and I always have and through my years at Gramercy and Craft and Hearth um, I think that I've done a pretty good job at finding a balance where it's a serious kitchen with tons of discipline, mm-hmm. but it's absolutely not an abusive environment. Right. And and that's not to say that I haven't done my share of like flying off the handle, screaming like a fucking maniac, mm-hmm. because there were there were years in my career where I did do that, but it was never it was always kind of um, it was always kind of with the right intentions in mind. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I think that, you know, if, if they see, if employees see that it's coming from a genuine place 
from your heart that is because you want to provide great things for people. And if it's born from a positive, good, soulful place Mm -hmm. that you, you get a little bit more of a pass when you have those moments. Right. Right. Cause like I've worked, I've worked for guys who are like crazy screamers, but they were just fucking assholes (laughs) that were just kind of like, they, they did it because, um, they were like power tripping jerks. Right. Do you know what I mean? There seems to be like, like, yeah, I, yeah. like a sadomasochistic think, element to the kitchen where some people are sadists yeah. and some people are masochists. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I think yeah. it matters. It matters the seed of where it's coming from. So when you, so when craft happened, how did that all go down? So did, did Tom, Tom left Gramercy Tavern to open craft and he brought you with him? Is that what happened? Well, he was actually doing both. When craft opened, he was both. Okay. Shortly after craft opened, I think, Gramercy went away. I see. Um, but at the, in the beginning, beginning, he was still the chef of Gramercy as well. And when you, I mean, when you um, went to Kraft, though, it was sort of this exciting new opportunity. And, and and I remember when Kraft first opened, it was like kind of revolutionary, right? Because it was like, yeah. it was all kind of a la carte and you ordered like your scallops and then you ordered your yeah. potatoes, and then, you know. Yeah. And, and then the yeah. idea was that everything had to be per- cooked perfectly, right? I mean, that was the point. Yeah. Um, yeah that was the point it was basically like you know there was two there was two things next to each other one was you know uh tom and i would talk about meals that we grew up on and it's like when you eat at home it's like everything goes to the center of the table and you pass it around and you eat it like you don't plate food right you know when you're at home although sometimes you i see you know i watch you on instagram a lot like <laughs> oh, yeah. sometimes if you're making pasta yeah. you'll put you'll make a plate of pasta yeah i played but a generally little bit. speaking yeah yeah you played a little bit yeah but generally speaking like when one eats at home you put a bunch of shit in the center of the table on platters and then everybody eats so we were kind of like you know, in the early days of conceiving of what craft was going to be, it was kind of like, yeah, like, you know, when you grow up, why can't you eat like that? So that mm-hmm. was one. And then the other one was like the classic American steakhouse where everything was a la carte. And it was like, oh, why can't we do b- both of those things mm-hmm. and and have it go way beyond just steak and have it be all the proteins and mm-hmm. all the sides and all the like a full restaurant? Um yeah, and then that's and that's what it was. And boy, it was a heady time and that was a very high profile restaurant. And mm-hmm. I think I think he spent like north of six million dollars to open that restaurant in really? two thousand. Wow. Yeah. And I did you know, and and I was part of the team from very, very early on. Mm-hmm. I watched the build out of that place and I worked with Katie Greco and mm-hmm. uh her and I opened that place and it was like an amazing team of cooks and Jonathan Benno and Akhtar Nawab and Damon Wise and um, my God, you know, Dave Chang came through there. I mean, it was kind of like, you know, maybe this is uh, maybe I'm overstating it, but it kind of felt like the second version of like the Lespinas, you know, Lespinas Grey Coons, you know, Mm -hmm. like that was like that was the iconic place. And like it was like 2.0 version of that in a way, I thought. And did it get reviewed right away? Did the New York Times review it? Yeah, Bill, William Grimes uh-huh. reviewed it, and we got a glowing three star review. And was it was he happy with that, Tom? When he got three stars, what do you, I mean? We got three stars, and we also won best uh, new restaurant in the country, mm-hmm. James Beard. So how did you go from that? So was that the last place you were before you opened Hearth? 
Yeah. So what was that like? I want to hear that experience. We're, 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 we're not out of time yet, but I feel like it's important to get to, getting close. to your, to your baby. You know, I want to hear about that. <laughs> um, you know, Katie Greco was the GM at Kraft and she was married to Paul, Bre- uh, Paul Greco, right. He, who was the wine guy at Gramercy for a lot of years. Sure. And, um, you know, after three or so years of craft and, and, you know, winning all those accolades and really setting the foundation and getting that place going, she was like, you guys should talk because you would make a great team Mm -hmm. and, you know, you should look into opening your own restaurant. And I kind of, I had always had it in the back of my mind. I mean, it was certainly a big, a big decision point in my career because it was like, I was either going to be Tom's right hand man and be like the number one employee. And if I had stayed, like I'd be in a pretty good position right now. Sure. Um, or, or like, you know, take a risk and go out on my own. Um, so a few conversations with Paul and a few, a few little pokes here and there to some potential investors and a few little pokes to some real estate guys. And, you know, before we knew it, we were, we were putting together a business plan to open a restaurant. Well, it's so funny because I moved to New York in um, 2006. When, when, when did Hearth mm-hmm. open? Was that right around? Oh, three. Oh, three. But I mean, that, my main memory of the East Village is the red awning that says Hearth. I mean, it's, it's, it feels so iconic. Yeah. It's just like it's always been there, you know, from as long as I lived in New York. And uh, yeah. so it's hard for me to even imagine like the time when it first opened because it's just always been just such a such a staple but so what was the beginning like for you was it was it a tough start or did it just sail right off and take off you know the funny thing about Horace is like um you know and I think it's a product of all kinds of things that we can get into or not I think we're running out of time but like you know it's it's never been an easy restaurant hearth like I think I think we were well received and well reviewed and we're very well loved in the industry, Yeah, but it's just like, you know, um, I feel like it's always struggled a bit with, with an identity. Mm-hmm. I think that I've, I've made strides over the 16 years to like kind of form a, a stronger identity today, but it's like, you know, we were always wrestling with, the balance of casual and fine dining and Paul came from fine dining and was very buttoned up suit guy. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I kind of came from, you know, I wanted that back then too. And Gramercy was very fine dining and like, I had big aspirations for three stars, but it was always at odds with like my soul of growing up and the food that I grew up with. And I feel like there was always, there was always a real tension and there was always like a not clear, identity of what that restaurant wanted to be well it's funny because that was the first Uh, thing that i said to you is that i was like i was curious about that conflict between growing up with this rustic casual cooked food and then so that's that's interesting to hear you say that but what were you going to say i don't want to interrupt the flow of what you were saying no it's just like you know i was caught up in i was caught up in the fine dining world of new york city you know and in retrospect it's like i wish i just fucking oh i think you I got it. I I, I, I was getting a call. Um, In retrospect, sometimes I think I should have just called it a a trattoria Mm -hmm. and embraced the soulful rustic cooking that I grew up on. Um, But, you know, that, you know, hindsight's 2020 and like, I don't regret any of the decisions Mm -hmm. I made, but I just think that hearth hearth has been 
quite a roller coaster ride through different identities. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that I love about New York. It's like, in order to like survive time to be, to survive in New York city, regardless of what you do, you need to evolve and change with mm -hmm. the times. And I think that that's one of the greatest things about being in New York. It's mm -hmm. like, it forces you to constantly adapt and reinvent well, it's and, interesting because as you're talking, like, when I think of Hearth and I think of like, what is its identity? Its identity is you. I mean, I think of it as mm -hmm. Marco Canora. And so as you got healthier, you know, and started being more interested in cooking healthful food, I feel like the menu at Hearth started to be a little more health conscious. And it's, it feels very much totally. tied to your identity. So I, I've never, yeah. I've never had that issue because it's like, I'm going to Marco's restaurant, you know, but it's interesting That's awesome. to hear you talk <laughs> about that. And then, so when did Brodo come about? So Brodo came about in uh, 2014, November of 2014. Okay. Um, and it was like after 10 years of hearth, uh, I, I recently split up with Paul Greco, my partner. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was the last, the last, you know, he and I always kind of butted heads a bit. And for a while it was the good kind of butting heads. And mm -hmm. then it was not the good kind of butting heads. Sure. And it started to become, it started to become a bit of a toxic bad business partnership. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it was pretty cool because on the other side of that long kind of, uh, divorce, um, my, my brain opened up in a way that was like really exciting. Cause I felt like, I just felt like an immense amount of like space to think again, you mm -hmm. know? And, uh, and what came of that was Brodo. Um, and it was, that, and it was yeah. like, I was going to ask, was just, that in the same time as like the broth, broth, because broth became a thing, right? Like beef broth and bone broth. Like there was like a, there was like a, it was in the air a yeah. little bit, right? And yeah, well, I'd like to think that we were a big part of that catalyst of making it a thing, mm -hmm. that window. So how um, did, was this part of the paleo diet? Like, was that sort of the idea? Was it, yeah, it, it started. Yeah. Paleo was gaining more and more traction around that time. It had been around for a while, but like, it really started gaining traction. Um, yeah. And the whole health and wellness space, if you will, um, really started to accelerate around that time. And so the timing was right. And now Brodo is, is it in whole foods? Is it, is it? Is yeah. We're not national. We're, we're regional in whole foods. Okay. Uh, we hope to get national soon. Um, but yeah, Brodo is, uh, is what they call an omni-channel business. So, we sell our products in shops mm -hmm. uh, through New York City. We have five shops. Um, we sell our products on Brodo.com. We have an e-commerce site. Um, so you could buy, and you need to start buying broth from I us because I see the kind of broth you use. <laughs> I feel terrible. And that's not allowed. It's Adam. because I used up all my Brodo. I used it all, but I have to buy more. Yeah, I need more Brodo. Not allowed, buddy. It's so good. Well, I was going to say to the people listening, especially in this time where we're all home cooking, like this is a great yeah. time to stock up on Brodo. And in it fact, makes such a difference. Did you see Tom Colicchio the other day was making asparagus soup and he used your Brodo? Yeah. He gave you a shout out. And so, I did know, you, so, I wait, so if people want to make your lentil soup that you made for lunch, was that, was that, how did you make it? Um, it was pretty basic carrot, celery, onion, lots and lots of garlic and fresh thyme, all fried in, in olive oil. Okay. And then, and then uh, a big thing of lentils. Uh -huh. And I used one container of uh, hearth broth. Okay. And then uh, one container of water. Like one of the nice things about using Brodo, in my opinion, is you could, in cooking applications, you could dilute it and it's still 
really good, mm-hmm. you know, because a lot of the broths you buy are kind of watery and garbage. So mm-hmm. you get one of our broths, you might pay more, but you could add water to it, especially in cooking applications. Right, because it's so thick and almost yeah. gelatinous. It's very gelatinous. gelatinous. Yeah, that's great. Oh, it shows a lot of gelatin, yeah. Well, Marco, every podcast begins with what did you have for lunch, but it ends with what are you having for dinner tonight? Ah, I have dough rising right now because I'm going to make pizza. Oh, nice. So tell us about pizza at home because I've never made good pizza at home. I want to know how you do it. Really? Yeah, I've never made like good pizza at home. I've made like Come on. cardboard, like crackery pizza. But Well, I mean, if you're comparing it to like Una Pizza Napolitana, yeah. like good luck, right? Like we have a high bar. Sure. But, you know, I, you know, very simple dough. That's just like my focaccia dough that's on my Instagram highlight story. It's like a thousand grams of flour and some instant yeast. Um, it's going to proof for like five hours. Uh, and then I'm going to beat it down and weigh it out into five equal parts and then let it proof again. And then a simple tomato sauce and some mozzarella cheese on top. You're making this sound the, the too tr- easy. This is, no, 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 it, no, no, it no. is easy. No, but you have to it stretch. Totally you is. have to stretch that dough. You have to toss it in the air and make a pizza. You dough. don't have to toss it in the air. Okay. And you can use a rolling pin if you want. I mean, that's the you know. I've, and by the way, I just want to spend a few seconds uh, touting how awesome you are because I'm serious. Like I remember watching, you're like one of the early first guys to do what everybody's doing today. Sure. And I remember watching your blog and I've been following your career for 20 years. Oh my gosh. I just think, um, I think that one, it's been amazing to see how much you've evolved as a cook. Thank you. Um, And it's really, it's also a point of pride because I see, some of my approaches like bleed into who you are today. As oh, a totally. A hundred percent. And I'm super, and I'm super proud of that. Yeah. Um, you should. But I think that, uh, you know, I love, I love the way you deliver cooking and education around cooking to the world, because it's like, it's super fun and it's super light and it's the way it needs to be. Like, I think people get too caught up in, in feeling they have, it has to be one way or the other. And mm-hmm. it's just like, Cooking is free form, man. And it's like, you should just have fun and let it go. Well, thank, thank you for saying so that. so fucking uptight. I feel like there's an authenticity to what you do. And maybe what I do where it's like, we're cooking ultimately to please ourselves. You know, it's, it's sort of like yeah. there's an authentic pleasure that we're both getting from what we're doing. And then it just so happens that it's also, it's a career too. So it's, it's nice to get to yeah. But you're still avoiding totally. the question. What, how, do, how do you cook the pizza? Do you put it on a cookie sheet? Do you put it in a cast so, iron skillet? You know, I spent the morning looking all over for my pizza stone, stone. which I can't find. Okay. So I'm going to have to do it on an upside down sheet pan. Upside down sheet pan. Yeah. Like, so, yeah. And then, so it's easy to get on and off. You're saying all these things like everybody would do this, obviously, but not, but no, people want to know this stuff. So how hot does your oven get? Uh, I'm going to put it up at the highest thing. I think it's 550 and I'm going to probably preheat it for an hour. Really? Because, like, you can't get it hot enough. And then how are you going to get the pizza on and off of your cookie sheet? I have a little slider thing. Yeah, that's the thing. You have all the equipment. You have all the things you need. I remember Jeffrey, yeah. Jeffrey Steingarten once wrote an article about making pizza at home, and he put his oven on the self-cleaning cycle, which gets it up to, like, 700, <laughs> 800. And he oh, kept, wow. And he kept, like, a broomstick, like, in it to keep it, like, wedged open so that he could open the door 
and make oh, like amazing. a really good pizza. But don't try that. I don't want you to burn your house down. I don't know. I might do that. So are you making, so you have like, you said, you mentioned your daughters. How old are your daughters? Uh, 13 and 8. And are, is your 13-year-old interested in cooking? Yeah, she, I mean, yes and no, but like I, I, she's getting better with a knife okay. and, um, she's like, she made her own mac and cheese for lunch the other day. Really? It was from a box, Did you but taste regardless, it? like, yeah, it tasted great. And she understands cause she watches me make pasta. Like the pasta goes in the pot with the water and like, she's really uh, bright and, and observant and she notices stuff and her mm. palate is really developing. And it's such a source of pride for me. Cause That's like, great. You know, these girls are, uh, they're, they're understanding the value of good whole food, you know? Well, they're growing up with a pretty great example of the kind of cooking that everyone <laughs> should do. Are, are you guys going stir crazy? Are you guys all trapped in your house? Yeah, it's, you know, it's getting a little challenging. Yeah. We all try to like, you know, I go out and go for jobs every once in a while. And yeah. uh, thankfully, we live in a home now. So there's like space for us to kind of do our thing. Mm-hmm. Um we moved out of the city a couple of years ago and I got to tell you, like it was very hard to, to leave New York city. Mm-hmm. But during this crisis, I've been very, very grateful to have a home and rooms and a kitchen. And I think, you know, I, I think it would be really, really hard to be a family of four in a thousand square foot apartment in New York city right now. That's very true. Yeah. You made a good move. Well, Marco, this was a great conversation. I hope you felt properly therapized and cleansed. I totally did. I wish we could do it more often. <laughs> You'll come back for a re- return visit, but um, well, I'm jealous of all your pizza and lentil soup, but um, enjoy <laughs> it. Eat it in good health. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. Thank you again. Acast powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. I'm Elsie Granderson. And I'm Will Leach. Every week in The Long Game, we look at the biggest stories in sports and how they affect the world of culture and politics. You think COVID has messed up sports forever? I think sports has totally forgotten that COVID ever existed. You think legal betting is bad for sports? I know it's bad for me to bet on the Pistons. That's a very, very bad idea. <laughs> Who is the most entitled GOAT of all time? I feel like there's a hundred-way tie for first. Well, at least at first. That's why they're the GOATs. We love talking about sports. And because we love our sports, we want our sports to be better. Which is why we don't dodge those big, messy issues. And we certainly do not stick to sports. So join us for deep thoughts, great laughs, and a weekly breakdown of the biggest issues in sports. The Long Game with LZ and Leach. Find us on the ACAST app, Twitch, and wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST, ACAST, ACAST recommends. recommends.